Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Justina Bice. It's January 29th, 2024. We're at the Patton Valley Vineyards Tasting Room in McMinnville. Yep. Uh, thank you so much, Justina, for joining us today. Uh, first question, as you know, is why wine? Yeah, okay. Uh, destiny? I know that's kind of cheesy, but um, so I grew up in hospitality. Like, I baked cookies and slept on the flower bags in the office um, in the restaurant my mom managed, and like my second family owned it. Um, so I started there and I worked with her forever and then um, we moved up here for a year in ninth grade. Um, so I'm from Albuquerque for the most part, although born in Hillsborough, so I guess I'm an Oregonian. But um, So yeah, so we moved up here and my parents were starting to get into wine and I think they wanted a DD. And so I went to the wineries every weekend with them. Um, and I just fell in love with it. I was already in hospitality at a very young age. And, you know, the culture and the vineyards and all, every part of it, I was like done sold. Um, and then I'm pretty sure my dad bribed Heather Perkin, who was brand new to Elk Cove at the time. She was the, like just started as their assistant winemaker. Um, she's still there now, but uh, they bribe, I'm sure that he bribed her, paid her out, no. but she spent like half of a day with us um, and showed me around and showed me production and everything. And I highly doubt she even remembers me, but I was like, that's it. I'm going to be in the wine industry, um, which is unusual for a ninth grader, I think, to say when they didn't grow up in the wine industry. Um, but so we only lived here for a year and made it back to New Mexico. My dad worked for Intel, so we like bounced all over the place. Um, and I went to this small little private school and there was like 60 of us in our graduating class and you know the college counselors are like what are you gonna be a lawyer a doctor and I was like a winemaker and they're like no you're not um, but I was bound and determined and so we started to look at schools and um, that was the time where there was like four schools wine business was not a like degree you could get at the time um, there was Cal Davis Cal Poly Fresno and Cornell those were your options and I was like, New York, no. So, and for some reason I ditched Cal Davis, I don't remember why, but it was between Cal Poly and Fresno. Um, and if you've been to either of those areas, they're like totally opposite, right? Fresno is like the blue collar version of the wine industry and Cal Poly is the white collar version of the industry. Um, so to make my school happy, I was like, Cal Poly. Um, so I was set to go and be a white, get my enology degree and I totally fell in love with the boy. <laughs> So you know how that goes. Uh, I stayed in Albuquerque. My dad was livid. Um, but on the bright side of it, I don't have debt from going to Cal Poly. So we'll take that as a positive. But so um, yeah, so I ended up staying at UNM and doing some prereqs, which also got me to learn that I'm not a science person, like whatsoever. So winemaking was probably not the best option. Um, so broke up with a boy, of course, and then was like, where do I go now? I'm stuck in Albuquerque once again. I want to get to Oregon. Like this has always been the plan. So I looked at schools up here. Oregon's expensive. Um, landed in Boise State. I was like, Idaho, close to Oregon. My family's from there. They did an exchange program, so I have to pay all out of state tuition. And I was like, done, okay, we're like slightly closer. <laughs> um, so, and they have a really good business program. So they have a um, entrepreneur degree. And at that point, since I realized I didn't like science, I still wanted wine industry. I was like, let's shift, let's do like wine bar. Like I grew up in restaurants, let's make sense. 
Um, and an entrepreneur degree will help with that. So I ended up at Boise State, and uh, the week after I moved up there, the Idaho Wine Commission was hiring for an intern, which was coincidental in and of itself. Didn't even know Idaho had wine. Um, and was convinced it was probably going to be awful, as most people probably are. By the way, Idaho wine is great. But um, So I ended up getting the internship, um, and it was an unpaid internship, but it was a foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with them for a while, got introduced to all the wineries, you know, that was there. And at the time there was probably oof, 10 of us, maybe 11. There's way more now. Um, and I, let's see, from the internship, then I met Kat House, who owns House of Wine. Um, she studied to get her master's of wine and she's passed some of them, which is pretty exciting. So I got to help her do that. Uh, but she had a wine education laboratory and taught consumer classes. And so I, once again, was like a foot in the door, so I told her I'd help her with the classes if I could attend them for free and learn. So she said yes. Um, and then I made her hire me, <laughs> pretty much. So I worked with her for a long time, and we did labs for wineries. She consulted with winemakers. Uh, we opened like a little educational kiosk. I started to help her teach the classes. I wrote articles for the local paper. I mean, just a slew of things, uh, which really was great because it kind of taught me everything in the wine industry. Um, and then I ended up at a Sawtooth Winery there, as well as a slew of other ones, but Sawtooth was kind of like my home, and did production with them, and I was their wedding coordinator, which is a thing <laughs> um, for any wedding coordinators out there. Um, but so I did that, and Sawtooth was cool because, gosh, I think it was like 200 acres, maybe it's more than that, but like 20 different varietals were planted. So it was this idea of let's just learn what we can learn because Idaho didn't know a lot at the time. Um, so I was there, graduated, and was like, okay, Oregon. <laughs> this has always been the plan. Uh, so I made it back here in 2015, finally. Um, and I actually haven't been at very many places here, which is kind of unusual, I know, for the industry. But um, I moved over. I started at what was Vista Hills. Um, then I went to Lakini, and then I ended up at Baton Valley. <laughs> so it was kind of a short, uh, short path in Oregon, because I'm still at Baton Valley now. So that was in 2016. So I really kind of jumped around a few in the beginning and then settled. Um, but I think, I guess the destiny side of it is the Baton Valley side of it. So rewind, when I turned 21, my parents brought me out here for Thanksgiving weekend. Um, that's when I fell in love with McMinnville too, because we came here, we stayed in one of the lofts on Third Street. It was, you know, Christmas time and lights twinkling, and I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and that was the time when, you know, you went to what, 10 wineries in a day, <laughs> and like got your free glass from each of them. And so we, our goal that weekend was to taste as much wine as physically possible, uh, which I can realize in the best way possible. We weren't like, let's get drunk. I was with my parents, but it was like, let's taste as much as we can. So we shared flights everywhere. I think we tasted over 60 different brands probably. It was complete chaos. Um, so naturally, you know, you don't really remember everything being 21 and doing that. Um, but I did remember from this whole trip, there was this label. Now I didn't remember where it was at because that's how that works but it had a folder and it had a paper clip in it. That's all I knew. Um, and spent years looking for it. I was like, you know, I don't know what this is. I don't remember what it was called. I thought it was in Dundee somewhere. So, you know, I like every time I went to a winery, I was like, do you have anything like this? I'm like, no. Um, so I started the job at Patton Valley 
And you know, you are cleaning up computers and everything like that in your first week. And this label pops up. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and it was labeled declassified. It didn't say Patent Valley on the front of it, which is why they didn't keep that label. It just became our white Pinot, or our white labeled Pinot. Um, and I was like, what is this, guys? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's the wine we used to make. I was like, I literally have been searching for this wine. Had no idea. Um, I mean, it makes sense. We were probably at Elk Cove, ended up at Patton Valley. You know, like, it makes sense. I just didn't even think about it. Gaston wasn't even, like, my register of an area. <laughs> Um, so, and then I, you know, I go back through and look through my photos and there's a photo of me and my mom in front of the Patton Valley side. And I'm like, okay, well that's kind of coincidental. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of cool. I guess that's, that's the long story short, but that I now own it. And you know, that sign is hung outside of the office at my house. So it's kind of a cool, like, I just felt like here I am. So we'll talk about the wine education part of things before, kind of pre-Oregon. Mm -hmm. You mentioned having this kind of the lab in, Bo in yeah. Boise and, and taking wine for that. So you mentioned kind of all the different perspectives. So tell me about learning wine, uh, both as a consumer, as someone who's selling wine, as someone who's teaching wine. What was captivating about it to you as you learned and what were the sort of the exciting things you learned along the way? Um, oh, there's a lot of exciting things. I think for me, the coolest part about wine is that it is always changing. Like it doesn't matter, right? We put it from the time you pick it to the time it's in bottle and even from bottle on, it is constantly something different and it constantly changes and it's physically impossible to know everything there is to know about wine. Um, and I think that's always been the most intriguing side of it to me. Um, so from a consumer, it's, you know, that's exciting because you're not going to get bored. Um, and even from, I guess, uh, our standpoint, from an industry standpoint, you know, there's, you're never gonna know it all. Um, so when I did the consumer classes with her, it was very much like wine 101, you know, like the real basics of here's the different varietals, here's how we taste, um, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I have gone through a couple of the WSET classes and stuff like that too. And the wine world is just crazy, to be quite honest. There is so much to learn. Um, so I think that's kind of the most exciting side of it. So tell me about the point where you, getting to the point where you can teach a class. Uh, how long did it take you, and did you feel like you were ready as you started to do that? Um, I mean, is anyone ever ready for that? I just taught wine 101, so let's. I did not go like. I mean, I did vineyard tours and stuff like that up at Sawtooth, but um, wine 101 was like, here's what Cab is, here's what Merlot is, here's what Pinot is, um, and you know, this is how you taste. So that one wasn't too bad. I felt like that was pretty good. Um, I still offer that to like my wine club if they want to do a wine 101 class. Um, I probably could teach more, but I get nervous, <laughs> so not a teacher. Um, but I did like the vineyard tours and that side of it. It's easier, I think, to be educational when you're out in the vineyard and you're like, here, try a grape. Let me like physically show you what this looks like. Um, so I did that. And then the writing of the articles was easy because, you know, you research, you write it, people edit it, and then it goes off. <laughs> so it's not like you're not on the spot being like, ooh, I just said that totally wrong. <laughs> So you talked about how Oregon was the goal all along, and, and, and so tell me about coming back to Oregon after having, you've been here, you visited, you had some wine education, you came back. What were your impressions of Oregon wine at that point? Um, you know, I didn't change much from what I remembered it being. Um, Oregon was, and Idaho was a lot of the same, but you know, it was a very collaborative industry. Um, and it was welcoming. and. 
I even, I think, kind of dove in more. Um, I run ITC, which is the Industry Tasting Collective. Um, so I got the opportunity shortly after I moved here to take that over from who had it before. So we just like, as a group, we schedule tastings so that we can all get to go taste other places because we all tend to be open and closed on the same day. Um, so I've been doing that for years too. And I think just like with that and then everything else, the industry itself is just so welcoming to people. Um, and everyone wants to teach everyone and like mo even the winemakers, you know, Derek at Patton Valley was like, great, jump in. What do you want to learn? Let me answer questions. Um, and that's what I thought it was before. Of course, you don't really know when you're visiting versus when you're in it. Uh, but I think it's a lot of the same, uh, which is great. I, I have not been in California wine industry, not saying anything against it. I have just heard from other people it's not like that. Um, Idaho was definitely like that too, though. So I think that's, it's a unique industry. Um, and the fact that we're still mostly small, I think, contributes a lot to that. So you mentioned starting at Vista Hills. So what was the first thing you did in Oregon wine? Just a tasting room associate. What was it like? Um, oh, that's a good question. What was it like? What I expected? <laughs> I don't quite know what, well, how do I answer that one? Um, I don't know, it was exactly what I assumed it would be like. Um, you have great people and you have not so great people walk into your tasting room. I mean, that's kind of part of it, right? Um, people are much nicer in tasting rooms than in like bars and stuff. I could say that from growing up. There was a lot more respect from the people in the tasting room um, from a consumer standpoint. Um, and I think I like it because it's hospitality, but I get to go home at six o'clock, not, you know, 2 a.m. So that's a different side of it too. With the consumers, what did you find they were interested in? Was it just purely like pour the wine and go away or were you doing a fair amount of education as well? No, there's a lot of education from the consumers. I think that's uh, the best part about it. Now, not everyone, right? You have to totally be able to read and judge your group. There are some groups that are just like, I just want to drink. And there's sometimes I go out and I just want to drink and I don't want to learn about it either. Um, but I think a lot of them love education um, and they want to know and they want to find the winery that will teach them that or the person that will teach them that. Um, I think there's a lot of like, for club members, you kind of create relationships with these people and they will follow you from winery to winery if they feel like they've like you know they know you um, and a lot of them for us at like even from Vista Hills to Patton Valley I had some people come because they're like you're the first person who sat down and has explained this to me or tried to explain it or looked it up with me or whatever it is you know um, and I think there's a lot of that in Oregon but it's just you have to be able to do it. That's what they want. That's what a lot of them want. They, yeah, they want the personal connection and yes, they want the story of like, oh, here's what the winery is, but they also want to be able to ask you the silly questions they're scared mm -hmm. and that they feel like they can't. And if you make them comfortable, then they will. And then they're gonna keep buying your wine. So it's kind of like a win-win. <laughs> so, so tell me about landing at, at Patton Valley in 2016. Uh, what led you to that place and, and what kept you there? Yeah, um, so I was looking, you know, I was looking to try to find an actual like tasting room manager position. Um, and I actually had another ex <laughs> who was working there at the time, uh, part time. And so he was like, hey, they're looking for this job, you know, they're going to hire someone. And I was like, okay, cool. Like he liked it. And so we, we already kind of knew the people there. Um, and they were looking to get someone in that would like fully actually open up the tasting room. The person before was by appointment and stuff. And so they, Pan Valley had kind of gone through this up and down of how is the tasting room going to work? Um, mostly because where it's located or what's located at the vineyard in Gaston. And so it's not an overly like populated area of the Willamette. 
Um, and so they wanted someone who was willing to come in and be like, I'm here five days a week. We're open five days a week. Let's really give this a go. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was what I was looking for too. And I probably had a little bit of an advantage. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it came down to, I remember they made me do like, so, oh my gosh, what was it? Five interviews or something. I gave a, I gave him crap about it for years, but I was like, guys, come on here. <laughs> like, um, I remember the last one. I was like determined I was gonna get the job. They made me drive all the way to like Northeast Portland somewhere, um, and then they're like, okay, we'll talk to you later. And I was like, you guys. <laughs> um, and I actually found out later on, um, Katie Arms, who did the interview a couple weeks ago, uh, she was the other person, and so she went to that same spot after me, um, and we met after that point, which was hilarious. But um, so so I started there, and I think what kept me is the owners. Um, Monty and Sherry Pitt are were kind of like the hands-on owners, um, and Derek Einberger was our winemaker, or is still our winemaker, um, and was a part owner too. And it's just the environment that they created. Um, they are really really good owners, and there's a lot of really good owners out there, and there's also a lot of not so great owners out there. Um, and I was lucky enough to find people that really, really cared. Mm -hmm. um, not just about their employees, but also about you know the vineyard and everything else too. Uh, so I think that's, that was really what kept me there. I don't like to jump around. I did almost leave at one point. Um, I was kind of like, you know, you get burnout. That's, I'm sure plenty of people have talked about burnout in the industry, um, especially because it was mostly just me. Like we had a wholesale person. Uh, we had the harvest team, but I was the tasting room for the most part. I had a few maybe part-time people, but you know, that was it. Um, and so I almost left at one point. Actually, Katie almost poached me. Um, and I went to, almost went to Willa Kenzie with her. And uh, they countered, and I know you, people say never take the counter offer, uh, but I wouldn't be here if I hadn't taken the <laughs> counter offer. So see fate. Um, but yeah, I stayed. It was hard to say no to them, and it was hard to leave them, and I didn't really want to anyway. I was just tired. Um, and so we reworked, actually, at that point. We reworked kind of what I did, and I became more of a DTC manager. Um, and we were able to hire someone into the tasting room full time so that I wasn't doing every job possible. <laughs> I at least could offload one of them. Um, which was great. Uh, so, you know, that's, we kind of did that. And then Patton Valley itself really started to grow. Um, we were, we got to about like a six, 7,000 case production, which I know is not huge, but it grew quite a bit. Uh, at the same time they hired me right before they hired me, they had hired Mike Wilson, um, who's at Adelsheim. If you've never done one with him, get him to do an interview. He's great. His story is crazy, um, but, um, he did wholesale. So he got us into almost all the states, uh, which really kind of got the name out there. And then we were building DTC up, and then we actually got a connection with the Monaco, in, which is not the Monaco anymore, but was Monaco in downtown Portland. Um, and those hotels apparently create a persona for the hotel, and they name it, and they have this whole like person. Uh, so they created Renee, um, <laughs> which, yeah. but we got to make the wine. So we made a wine called Renee. And then we weaseled our way in and said, hey, we could do a pop-up bar in your hallway between check-in and the elevator. So everyone who walks by has to walk by our bar, um, which was great. And they said, sure, why not? So we put a bar there. It was pop-up. We were there all the time. <laughs> so literally Thursday through Monday. Um, but it was a pop-up bar. Um, and we hired a guy to run it who is exactly what you need in that situation. You know, you need someone who is going to 
maybe be a little more pushy, not like in a bad way, but you know, like you gotta get the person to come over. They're trying to go to their room. You need to get them to come and drink wine. Um, and he was great at it. And he really built that side up too, so that we got a whole nother group of consumers that we never would have. You know, again, coming from Portland out to Gaston, while it's not far, no one thinks of driving that way. They think Dundee. Um, so that really kind of helped grow the business too, um, which was gave me the ability to also to go into that DTC manager position since we had multiple locations and stuff. So that's kind of as we started to grow up until COVID. <laughs> well, we will talk about COVID. Yeah, right. Don't worry about that. So I'm curious, going from the kind of finding your spot and growing in it, you mentioned obviously different roles. You mentioned battling with burnout and that kind of thing. Tell me about sort of weathering that and, and finding finding your way as a full-time employee at Patent Valley and finding the spot that made you happy to stay. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for wine, or maybe it's just everyone, but we'll say for wine industry people, is saying no. Um, I think since so, so many of us are small and the businesses are small and there's only a few employees, it's not a job. You know, like Monty and Cherry seemed like parents. Like, you know, when I went through hard times, I called Cherry and talked to her about it. Um, so you, you tend to get burnout because you just feel so connected and you feel so responsible for it, um, which is a good thing and also a really bad thing, right? Um, so I think for me, I had to learn how to kind of say, okay, at what point do we say no? At what point is days off are actually days off? Um, and it's okay to tell the customer, I'm not gonna email you back yet, <laughs> or I'm not gonna answer the phone right now, or you know what, we're all sick, the tasting room's gonna be closed for a day, and what you gonna do? Um, and I think that was actually really hard for everyone to do prior to COVID. I actually think we've all gotten a lot better after that, but um, it, was, it was trying to find that balance, that work-life balance, and in an industry where you're not, it's not just a job, it's also what you're passionate about, it becomes really, really hard to find that work-life balance. Um, which is, like I said, also a good thing because you're doing what you love, but um, I've never had a job where I'm like, oh, you know, I'm off at five and I'm off at five. Like, I don't understand that concept. Um, thank God for my husband, because he is like, no, put it down. Um, but he was the first one to do that. <laughs> so uh, I think I got, I slowly started to get better at it. Um, and it took time and it took encouragement from friends and it took you know, all the other people in the wine industry that I rely on all the time, calling and yelling and complaining and us drinking wine and then being like, okay, fine, we're over it, let's move on. <laughs> um, it was a lot of that. It's, and I would say that for anyone coming into the industry now, and not that I think you're gonna do any better than probably the rest of us, but <laughs> really try to have some balance. Try to like, when you go out to a wine bar at the end of the night, maybe just go drink the glass of wine. Like don't evaluate it, don't overthink it, don't try to find the flaw in it or pick out the black cherry or whatever. Just, just go drink it, you know, and then go home. Like that, that's where I think we all struggle a little bit with it. Um, and maybe I've gone a little too far because sometimes now I'm just like, I don't care. Like I just, I just want a glass of wine. I don't even care the quality really. Let's just drink a glass of wine. But maybe that's a good thing too. Um, so I think it's just with age too, you kind of develop that a little bit more. Um, but it, it's it's hard. It's hard because of the connection you have with the people who are running these places. So. So prior to COVID, where did you sort of anticipate your career going? What were your What were you hoping to do? 
I was content where I was, um, which I know is also a weird thing to say a lot of the time. Um, getting my degree in entrepreneur management and helping all of these wineries, I was like, absolutely not. I'm not owning a winery. Look where I'm at now. But <laughs> that's another story. We'll get there. Um, but I was just like, it's so much work. And like, I was, I'm already so committed to the place. But if I had to, I could walk away. Mm -hmm. Worst case scenario, I still get a paycheck, you know? And so the idea of actually owning one was like, ooh, that's, you know, let's, let's get as high up as we can within it, feel a connection to it, really almost have it be yours. Monty and Sherry were pretty hands off towards the end, um, but still have that like sense of freedom. So that was, that was kind of always my goal. Um, and I know that's not like a big reach for the stars type goal, but it made sense to me. Um, and now I own a winery. <laughs> so I did real well with that. <laughs> so we'll talk, about, we'll talk about 2020 a little bit. Obviously, a struggle in a variety of ways in 2020. Yeah. Let's start with the pandemic and, 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 and someone in a DTC type role and I'm managing that. What was the sort of immediate effect and what were the decisions and challenges you had to deal with that, that year? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, everything got closed down. <laughs> so what do you do? Um, so, I mean, I think for us, actually for Patton Valley, for the, for the history of Patton Valley, um, it actually started in 19. Uh, our neighbor decided to burn their property right during harvest, which is great. Uh, so we had the really lovely smoke effect prior to 2020. Um, so for us, our, from DTC perspective, we were already starting to be like, what do we do in 2019? Um, we tried to do all the things that everyone did in 2020 on the fruit. It just didn't, we couldn't guarantee anything. Um, and I think that speaks to Monty and them that they were like, well, we can't promise that this wine is gonna be what it should be. And so all we did in 2019 was make our like $26 bottle, which from a DTC perspective, when you got one Pinot, that's a challenge in of itself. Uh, luckily 18 was a higher production year. So like we had, we were able to maybe kind of ride it through. Um, but we were already starting to be like, can we cut back? How do we cut back? Um, especially for wholesale purposes too. That Pinot was pretty much the wholesale Pinot. We distributed a little bit else, uh, but that was the main one. But if they took all of it, then what was I getting? Um, so we were already kind of in this like, where do we go? And then, um, and then to make things a little bit more complicated, and all of this will add up onto why Monty and Sherry were like, we're definitely retiring. Uh, at the end of 2019, Derek, our winemaker, decided he wanted to move to Canada. Totally fine, wasn't gonna be a big deal. He was gonna come down and work harvest. You know, we had an assistant winemaker. Monty's made the wine. Mike and I had been there forever doing production. It wasn't gonna be a big deal. Um, so now we're at 2020. Derek is stuck in Canada um, and can't come back down. Um, from a DTC perspective, we're trying to figure out what we're even allowed to do because it literally changed daily. Um, wholesale disappeared completely. So there went that entire side of the business, which just from, again, a business perspective was like, okay. Um, and so the Monaco shut down because, you know, we couldn't have that open either. So there's so many of these like, okay, we're, we're nixing off profit pretty much. And um, so Monty and Sherry were bound and determined to keep all of us and continue to pay all of us, which I'm gonna say it like 18 times, but again, just speaks to how great of people they were, or are. Um, and so we did everything we could. And I know everyone has said the word pivot. It, it was that, you know, we, 
redid the tasting room to try to have space. Then we came up with 18 different options on how to do them outside. We had lots of different 10 by 10 tents because uh, we do this big rosé festival. So I had like 28 10 by 10 tents and I was like, great social distancing. <laughs> um, so for a while we set them up in the vineyard, which was fun, but also we were setting up tents and tables and chairs every single day and breaking them down every single day. I mean, talk about burnout, it was exhausting. Um, we finally found a spot up in our production area that was covered, so when we started to get into winter, it was also helpful. We still set up the tents so we could hang heaters from them, because you know, drinking wine in the freezing cold was fun. <laughs> um, but, and so we had like six tables up there. And that's kind of what we stuck with all the way through COVID for the most part. Uh, we let some people into the tasting room, but as a whole, we all kind of decided we didn't really want people in there. Um, and so outside seemed safer for everyone, whether it was, who knows, everyone can have their opinions. But uh, so we, we pretty much had that. And um, it was me, Lacey, um, who I hired to run the tasting room for the most part. And then David, who was up at the Monaco, came down and worked. And we tried to keep everyone as long as we could, pretty much. Uh, it got challenging. <laughs> you know, we were busy, we were selling lots of wine, but you can only have six tables at a time. So that's a very different, you know, very different than the belly up to the bar concept that used to be. Um, we offered deliveries. David was in Portland, so it made it really easy. We had literally a weekly delivery schedule. Um, got to know a lot of our wine club members' houses really well. <laughs> um, you know, people were drinking a lot. Everyone was drinking a lot. So, so COVID, I think from a DTC perspective is so interesting because as a business as a whole, if you did wholesale, you were still SOL. But your DTC side was like, um, and you're like, wow, I didn't know we could sell that much wine. Um, and we're just now this year seeing the turnoff of that. Like, oh, wait, they all bought a bunch of wine. Now they're not. Um, so, you know, I, we did what we could and we, it was interesting. It, I think it, in the long run, it's definitely going to end up impacting how the industry is now and how it will go moving forward. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. That was fun. <laughs> Love COVID time. <laughs> Didn't we all? So, so coming out of that then, obviously so many things had changed so quickly. Uh, and was there, a, was there a push from your, in your perspective, was there a push to get things back to normal? Or was there more of a push to kind of make, make the best of what you had? Um, so we were in an interesting point because we were in the process of closing down. Um, so that was, and again, we can kind of get into that in just a second, but prior to that, um, there was, I really don't think there was a push to go back to normal. There, even as people were starting to feel more comfortable, a lot of our wine club was like, we don't want you to change this. Like we did open the tasting room back up, um, but most people still wanted to sit outside. They still wanted to have a little distance, because none of us knew still, right? Like we wanted normal, but then we didn't want normal because Maybe that's not okay. Maybe we'll all get COVID again. Um, so I think from a consumer standpoint, I really don't think there was, there was and there wasn't. Like everyone said, yeah, we want festivals again and stuff, but then no one showed up to the festivals. So like, or yeah, we want events, but we're not gonna show up to the events unless there's only 30 people and we're all five feet apart, you know? And so it was, it was interesting. And we tried to plan some events. Um, I think all of them actually got shut down like the day before. <laughs> Those are fun times too, but. Um, I don't think there's a big push to go back, and I think that's why we're still seeing so much of the tasting rooms operating how they are. Um, I think we're slowly 
just now kind of getting the push of let's go back. Um, and not to the belly up to the bar. No one really wants that anymore. But um, the maybe I don't want reservations. Maybe I don't want to have to sit down at a table. Like I do maybe just want to come stand at a bar and do a flight that only takes 30 minutes and then leave and not be here for an hour and a half. Um, we are starting to see that push come back, I think. Um, and the wineries are deciding. Um, and that's, a, that's the interesting where is the industry going to go side of it. Because um, a lot of them liked the reservation. A lot of them liked how we were set up during COVID. Take the COVID side of it out. Um, what it forced all of us to do was create a very, very different experience. Um, and a lot of wineries really, really like that. I personally don't. <laughs> I don't. We have it on our signs in our tasting room. No reservations. I'm done. I don't want you to call me anymore. Just show up. <laughs> like, I'm, this over-communication, I'm over it, <laughs> to be honest. But it's not a bad thing. It's not. It's just personal opinion. So... So you brought up earlier that that Patton Valley was going to close down at that point. So yes. Tell me about how that sort of how that came about. Yeah. So um, so Monty and Cherry were looking at retiring, and I think um, we we're seeing this in the industry right now. We're going to continue to see this. All these people who started in the '90s are at retirement age, and if they don't have kids who want it, what happens? And we've seen wineries close down, and part of that yes was due to COVID, but I think part of it was also we want to retire anyway. Now's the time. Um, and so we're starting to see that, and it's either they close or California buys them. Kind of where we're at right now. Um, and I think I think we are in an interesting spot. And I was talking to someone at the Oregon Wine Press about it that like we might be a test case for some of these people and what you can do. But so Monty and Cherry and all of them were looking at retiring. I kind of led up to some of the things that were happening that were pushing towards retirement. Um, so yeah, you know, COVID happened, all of that, and then fires started. Um, and then our assistant winemaker quit right before harvest in 2020 and Derek was stuck in Canada and it was just this like, okay, like, you know, if you want to talk about signs, there's a few signs. Let's maybe just call it quit. Um, so like Mike and I made a little bit of rosé and Chenin Blanc in 2020 with the help of Siler Barnum from Barnum Vintners. Um, and that was it. And I mean, even before that, actually, we had to make the decision on how to do the vineyard because we knew early on in 2020, half of our income was gone pretty much. And so um, again, speaking to Monty and Cherry, we sat down and had a meeting and we were like, okay, do we farm this entire vineyard non-organically, which is not how we farm, or do we farm half the vineyard organically? And we made the decision to do that. And so we paid someone to do the half of the vineyard and we were out there suckering and tying the canes down and moving the wires. And if you wanna respect your vineyard workers, please go and sucker a vine. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't even tell you. Um, and it was me and Lacey and Monty and Mike and my 15 year old nephew who got stuck up here with us for a little bit. And like, we were out in the vineyard suckering. Um, and a crew of firefighters, thank God for them, um, who came in and helped us, who knew Mike, and they came in and did all the wire raising in the half of the vineyard just to keep it well enough we could produce the next year. Um, so, yeah, so that even happened before harvest and then fires, you know, so it was just kind of this like they were done. And I don't blame them by any means. Um, so they tried to sell the brand and the vineyard together, but I, like I said, a lot of people are running into this. The people who want to come in and buy these vineyards don't see the benefit in the brand. And that really sucks for people who you know, have spent 25, 30 years building this brand up and for someone to say, it's not really worth a whole lot. Um, 
And it sucked for me too, to be quite honest, because when I heard people say that, I was like, man, like we built up the wine club. We still got like 600 members, which for a small winery during COVID was actually pretty dang good. Um, so even I kind of was like a little bit hurt about it, but, um, but it was what it was. They were done. Um, so they sold the vineyard. So Fela Wines now owns the vineyard um, and they have their tasting room up there and stuff. So it's Fela now. Um, and we were going to close down. That was it. So I started clearing out wine. I cleared out our entire library. I flash sold so many things. We did Monday Madness, which was going off of March Madness and had a deal. I mean, like any kind of sell I could come up with. Um, and this was, when was this? About mid 2021. And I think the goal was to be sold out, I mean, not as fast as possible, but by the end of 2022 at the latest. Because um, we had a bunch of wine. It was gonna take some time. It wasn't gonna be instant. Um, and so that's the path we were on. And then at the, it was either the end of 21 or beginning of 22, Derek was like, hey guys, I'm moving back to the States. And so he uh, got a job at Dobbs to be their full-time winemaker. So he's there now. Um, and at that point, Monty and Cherry came up with an idea and they approached us and they said, you guys have kind of built up the brand. Do you want it? Um, and that's how I ended up being a winery owner. But it's like, how do you, it's one of those things of how do you say no? Um, and I contemplated saying no and I went home to my husband and I was like, yeah, yeah so we have this opportunity. And he's like, yes. And I was like, you were quick to that. Um, well, good thing you're an engineer and you can like, you bring home the money. So, um, but he was really supportive of it, which was also great because um, otherwise it wouldn't have worked. And um, Derek and I sat down and talked about it too because we're not made of money. It's, you know, we're not coming in buying something or having the ability to buy a big thing, which is why they didn't buy the vineyard. Um, and Derek was like, look, I have a full-time job. So all we have to do is make this work for one family. We have to support one family. And I think we can do that. Um, so we decided to give it a go. Um, so we took over in 20, um, August, August of 2022 is when we officially took over. Um, and we moved from the tasting room. Um, we were gonna be nomadic. I had this big plan, it was gonna be great. We we're gonna go do pop-ups, we we're gonna have a physical location, we were gonna still sell lots of wine. <laughs> That's not how it worked out for all these small winemakers that run around and do pop-ups all the time. Like, God bless you. It was so much work. And I thought COVID and deliveries were a lot of work. Um, it was hard and it was confusing for the wine club. Um, and we were lucky. We got to keep a lot of the wine club um, because they knew us and they knew it was still going, um, but it was a lot of communication and it was a lot of, where are you? I can't get my wine, I'm confused. Okay, this is too much, I'm done. Uh, which I can't blame them for. So uh, we, I kind of did it for a year. I did the pop-ups for a year and then we were like, we gotta find a location and settle down. Um, but we went from you know making 6,000 cases to making 600 cases. Cause Derek and I were like, we're, we're doing what we can afford and that's all we're doing right now. Um, and Monty and Cherry gave us great terms and kind of gave us the ability to slowly buy the inventory instead of buying it in bulk, which again, we wouldn't have had the money to do. Um, but all of that added up to us actually being able to keep this brand alive and going. Um, so we changed it to Patton Valley Wines instead of Vineyard. 
just because I feel like that's kind of false advertisement. Um, but other than that, everything is still the same. Derek's still the winemaker. You know, Monty still comes down and drinks wine, and we still send him the new wines, and he gets an opinion whenever he wants one. Um, in my, at least in my opinion, he does. Um, so I think it's an interesting, we are an interesting test for what the industry might see moving forward for some of these owners. Um, you know, you, if you have employees who have been there for a while, they are connected and maybe there is an opportunity for your brand not to close down. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it's working so far. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I want to get to the space in a moment because obviously this is a big step. But before that, obviously you had sold the vineyard. So tell me about continuing to make wine where were the grapes coming from and what was, what if anything changed about sort of style or presentation of the wine? Yeah, so I mean, we are retraining our wine club right now and consumers. We were always so focused before on it's the vineyard, it's the vineyard, it's the vineyard. Um, and let's be honest, we put a lot of work into the vineyard. So a lot of it was the vineyard, but it's the winemaker, <laughs> you know, a lot of it is Derek too. He was there since 2010. He's been making the wine pretty much, you know, the whole time that most of the people who are still in the wine club know. Um, and so at this point we're trying to be like, look, I know it's a different, but it's not. Uh, so stylistically, the wines are the same. It's still Derek making the wines. Dobbs is wonderful. They let us make the wines there. It's absolutely great. Take up a little corner of their space. Um, they let me pack up wine club shipments there so I have more space and a forklift. They're like wonderful. but. Um, so from that perspective, stylistically, the wines are the same. Is the vineyard the same? No. Um, and so that's where we're having to kind of re, remarket ourselves, I guess. Uh, we do still get a source from the old vineyard. So we do still make a wine from there. Um, they get us like a ton of fruit each year. So not a lot, but a little bit. Um, and then the benefit of where we're at right now is that Dobbs actually gets to source from lots of different vineyard sites. And they are nice enough to let us also source from those sites if we want to. Um, and these would be sites we wouldn't have access to otherwise. Um, so we're really lucky in that sense. And so Derek picks vineyards that he likes um, and that he wants to explore. And he's actually having a little bit more fun with it now because he's not stuck to just Patton Valley or what was Patton Valley. Um, he is exploring now. So like we've sourced from Chehala Mountain Vineyards. We did Eola Springs. Um, we are doing Seabreeze. Like there's just a slew of different vineyard sites. Um, we are trying to kind of keep the wine similar. So we used to have a wine called The Estate, just like everyone else is The Estate, right? It's the flagship Pinot. This is what the property is. Um, we got cheeky with it. This was all Derek, but he called it a state of mind. So that is our new one. Um, yeah, he's actually pretty good at marketing. Um, so he picked a barrels that were as reminiscent to the old profile as we could. Um, and for how young it is, it's actually pretty reminiscent of the old vineyard site. Uh, we're still, you know, we had a blue label white Pinots um, before that were block designates. So now they're vineyard designates. Um, we I have a new color label now for anything from the old vineyard. So we're making West Block, which was a block from the old vineyard again. So that's a new color. Um, and then we're still making the wines that were dedicated to the original owner's moms. So that was always our reserves up there. So we have Fumi, which was Dave Chen's mom. Um, and it's a Pinot Noir Blanc. And we have Lorna Marie, which is Monty and Cherry's mom. Um, and that's our reserve. So we're still doing those. So those are the same. Uh, we're still making Rosé. So overall, it's really the same lineup. It just, Slightly different, just a little different. <laughs> um, 
And tell me about, you mentioned obviously having to rebrand and retrain, remarket that. Um, how much did you want to sort of put your own stamp on things versus keeping things as they have been? I am struggling with that right now. To be honest, it's a, like, um, you want to like honor it. I still don't quite feel like this is mine, to be honest. Um, and it's new. I mean, we took over in August of 22. It's not like we've owned it for that long. Um, but I'm still kind of like, oh, do I, need to, do I need to make sure Monty agrees with this? Or like, or even with Derek, I, I'm like, okay, do I, I should make sure Derek thinks this is a good idea. Well, I don't have to. I can just make that decision. Um, but I still kind of struggle with that a little bit. Um, so I think right now I still kind of want to keep the old. Um, but we're, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm wanting to change things up a little bit. Uh, we're making a new wine that's going to be a sparkling and it's called Yulia, which is celebrate and finish. Um, and my family's Finnish. So that's like my, this is like my first one. I'm really excited about it. And everyone's like, well, they're all yours now. I'm like, no, but this one. <laughs> um, so I think we're, we will slowly kind of start to veer off. But the whole point of keeping it was to keep the legacy and to, and to honor that as well. Um, and so I don't want it to be totally different. That wasn't ever the goal. I wasn't planning on coming in and being like, none of these wines anymore. We're going to totally change everything up, which is why it was really important to me. We still made Lorna Marie, and we still called it that. Um, and I will continue to tell people that that's why it's called that. Um, you know, we don't have to totally switch it and make it its own thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but making some other different wines, like a sparkling one, you know, that's pretty exciting. So um, I will probably, as the years go on, <laughs> get a little bit better of realizing it's mine, I guess. But I'm not there yet. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> So you, you talked about the initial thought of the nomadic pop-ups and the the, rove, the roving brand brand of wine. Uh, tell me about the decision to come here. Yeah. So speaking of burnout, <laughs> um, I, it was it was a lot of work doing the pop-ups, and um, like I said, it was a lot of communication and a lot of miscommunication. Which uh, from a consumer, if you miscommunicate too much, they don't want to keep coming. Um, so I was like, okay, I got to find a tasting room. And the owners of this building had actually approached me in the very beginning. Um, and they were like, hey, we're looking at you know, renting out our space. It was the art gallery before the Ten Oaks. And I was like, that is a real big space, and I did not have the money. Um, so I said no. And then when I realized I wanted a space, I started to look around. And I was like, I want a shoebox. I want a closet for wine and barely a table, because that's what I can afford. Um, and that wasn't an option anywhere. And so I kind of went back to, okay, let's think about other things I've done in the past. And one of the places I worked at was a collaborative tasting room. It had three different brands in it. That's where the wine laboratory was too. So like we had a little kiosk there too. Um, and it worked. And so I was like, maybe that's a concept we can explore. So I posted up on that ITC page and was like, I'm starting to contemplate this. You know, are there any other small brands out here who are interested in sharing a space? Um, and like right away, John from Ocelai Sellers commented and was like, hey, we're thinking the same thing. Um, and so him and I met up and it was a pretty quick like, okay, sold. Uh, the best part is they are 100% Grenache. So for me, I was like, I don't want Pinot and Pinot. Like then that is a competition. Um, and as much as I want, you know, everyone to grow together, I also want you to buy my Pinot. So I didn't want, you know, I had to find someone who was different, which is also hard to do in the Valley. Um, so it worked out really well that he also was in the same boat and doesn't make any Pinot Noir. Um, 
so we kind of talked about that. We started to look at spaces, and then Nancy from here approached me again. I was like, hey, you know, I saw your post. Like, space is still available. And so I came and took a look at it again. I'd been here, but, you know. Um, and I was like, sold. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of what we created up at Patton Valley before was a sense of family. And when you walk in here, it's an old house. And it is a family house. And so I was like, if I don't have a vineyard, at least I can create the atmosphere that was always there. Um, so I told John to come over and look at it, and he was hesitant, because he was like, really, McMinnville? And I was like, it's five minutes from my house. <laughs> um, maybe that was part of it, too. But, uh, and he walked in, and it was the same thing for him. Um, you know, It's got all the original woodwork. It's, it's a really cool house. And so uh, we were pretty much sold. And since it was the two of us, we could afford to actually have a tasting room and split it. And so that's where we're at now. Um, and that's what we're trying to create here. So, you know, downstairs we have like the formal living room area. We have like the den area. Um, eventually, once we finish, we're gonna do a big built and we haven't finished it quite yet, but it's gonna feel like a kitchen. So we don't have a bar. We have a kitchen island. Come stand in the kitchen around the island and drink wine. Cause that's what people do at their houses. Um, you know, we have individual rooms up here that all have different feels to them. We have a kid's room, which, I mean, that was kind of me, but um, I'm like, it, there's millennials and they want to drink wine and they have children and I don't want to take my kids and throw them on an iPad in the corner. I want them to feel like they're at home. Um, and they did at the vineyard. They got to go run around the vineyard and play with the dogs and stuff like that. So I was like, I got to bring that atmosphere here too. So they can come in color and make crafts, which is fun because most of the time I get like paper flowers from them. Um, but you know, I, I really wanted it to feel not like a sterile tasting room. I really wanted it to feel like home and we got to. So it's pretty cool. And we've only been here since October. So it's still brand new for us. So a lot of changes quickly. Yes. Uh, So tell me about um, how the process has gone so far in the tasting room and sort of what you're looking forward to in the kind of the short term future. Yeah, um, so far so good. It is slow but it's slow throughout the whole valley right now. Like I said, we started in October, so it's not like we had the summer rush. Um, And from talking to everyone, it has been a very slow year. Um, Like I said earlier, we're seeing that kind of tick off from uh, COVID, I think. And so people just aren't out as much and they're not buying as much wine. Um, Hopefully that'll go back up again. But um, so we've been slow, but it's been good. I'm hoping that come the summer and getting out there and getting people to know that we're here uh, will really help. We aren't on Third Street. And I didn't want to be on Third Street because I didn't want to be a wine bar, even though that's what I wanted in the, all in the beginning of all of this language to own a wine bar. But um, I didn't want to have a wine bar. I didn't want to be open till 8 o'clock because it's just me again. We've, we've gone all the way back to no other extra people. It's me and my mom who works for wine, um, which is pretty fun because I get to boss her around now. It's tides of turn. Um, but no, she's, my family is great. They all come and help with absolutely everything. Um, but it, yeah, I'm hoping that people will get to know that we're here. You know, it's not necessarily the best location. It's not the worst. You see us driving down, um, but it's not Third Street. So I think once we're here, people will get that, and um, it will be busy is the hope, right? I think that's kind of always the hope of a tasting room. Build back up Wine Club. Um, I just want the McMinnville community to realize we're here. So much of my consumer base before is Portland and Hillsboro. Uh, so we need to get McMinnville and Salem now, which is a totally different clientele than what we had up there. Uh, so I'm trying to get out there. You know, we. 
sponsored a plane at the Aviation Museum during the holidays, which is super fun because you get to go decorate a plane. <laughs> um, I maybe went a little over the top. But, uh, you know, so like I'm trying to get out into the community here. We'll do uh, the McMinnville Food and Wine Classic. I wanted to call it SIP. Still call it SIP, but it has changed. It's not called SIP anymore? No, I know. No, it's not. They're going to get mad. I've, it's been years and I still call it SIP every time. McMinnville Food and Wine Classic. Okay. It might be wine and food. I probably am still saying it wrong. <laughs> but, um, so I'm hoping to kind of get, you know, get to know this area, make connections with Linfield. You guys are across the street from us. <laughs> so, you know, um, doing that and creating a community here, in which case then that will just keep the tasting room going. We're the place, like I said, it's a home. So let's create a home for the community. So hopefully that will happen. You talked about sort of starting out making making the wine you can afford to make, making the amount you can afford to make. Is there a growth goal you have in mind? Do you have a space you'd like to be in terms of amount of wine, amount of employees, amount of... Yes, that? yes, hopefully. I won't be working weekends again. <laughs> I had made it there and then it disappeared. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think we need to build the club back up um, to a point that the wine club and the production, which is probably around that 2,000, 3,000 case production um, is enough that we can, you know, have staff and um, maybe even hire someone to like do what I did in the beginning um, and eventually be able to kind of step back. I never want to step back all the way. I'm a control freak. It won't happen. But like, you know, I at least want to be able to not be here all the time. Um, so that's the goal. And if we can get back up to about that two, 3,000 case production, we, we would be able to do that. We'd be able to hire on someone or a couple people. Um, we would be able to distribute a little bit more. I don't want to distribute a ton. Um, and really make it a fully functioning business that, again, only needs to support one family for the most part. So, I mean, and your employees then. But that's not, that's not as big as before. So hopefully that is where we will get to again. That's the goal. Uh, I think it will take some time. But that's okay. I've done the time before. I guess I can do it again. <laughs> weekends are the worst. I was so used to having weekends off, and here we are again. <laughs> but do those people want to drink wine on weekends? I know. So tell me about. You mentioned something earlier. I thought that was really interesting about sort of not necessarily feeling like it's yours yet, and still kind of getting used to it being yours. Tell me about the. Have there been surprises about owning a wine brand? Have there been what what has been surprising or, or, or unexpected for you in the in the last year? Uh, compliance is really hard. <laughs> I think that's like the hardest thing. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of it up there, but I didn't do some things and <laughs> compliance and accounting and taxes and all those things that I learned in my entrepreneur degree and forgot. Um, those things suck to be quite honest it's not the fun side of owning a business um and it's probably the side most people don't talk about because it's not fun um so that has been a huge challenge i have you know made tons of mistakes in that regard and have paid states ridiculous amounts of money and not sold any wine there and you know like it's just it's a learning curve um of things that i wouldn't have even expected but i guess I, maybe i should have known about um but a, a lot of it has to do with that type of stuff, you know, the legality side of it versus just the like, hey, here's some wine, drink it. Um, that's been the challenging side, uh, but we're getting to a point that I'm starting to figure it out. Not compliance, so I gotta get someone else to figure out compliance, but uh, I'm figuring out the rest of it. Um, but I think aside from that, that's been the hardest part of it, which isn't 
the worst thing that, that I can learn and that I can figure out. Um, there's lots of great people and lots of great small winery owners out there and they have all helped. You know, I've called them being like, I don't understand this. Um, and they're like, send me your info and I'll figure it out for you, um, which is great. So there's the benefit of Oregon has a lot of really small wineries and a lot of really small winery owners and we're a tight knit com community and so they're all willing to come and help, which is great. Um, but aside from that, it hasn't been, it doesn't feel drastically different than it did before. Aside from that one point, um, and so, which is why I think it still kind of doesn't feel like it's totally mine because I did make a lot of those other decisions before. I did do all the marketing. I did, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's not like drastically different. I do get to say no to some things now. That's, that's kind of exciting. Um, but that's, that's about the biggest difference. But I think, yeah, that's why it doesn't quite feel totally different yet. But maybe once I learn compliance, it will. <laughs> or hire someone. <laughs> well, what's been the most rewarding part of it so far? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think the best moment so far was our first pickup party. Um, so we had like 60, we did two different sessions. So we saw like 150 people over the weekend, which is a lot. Um, and so one, it was exciting that they all still came, you know, and that they still supported us. Um, but we have my whole family here working because again, like I said, that's the only staff I have. Um, and I saw so many of them come in and they gave me big hugs and they talked about how proud they were. And it's just like, I'm gonna get emotional. Um, it's, it was cool. It was cool to see that um, it is more of a family, right? And God, this is silly. Um, probably good for your archive. Big <laughs> um, time. I know. Um, I think that was the best moment so far. It, it was great. Um, and it was great to see them like, go up to my dad and say the same thing too. So, you know, that part is really cool mm -hmm. and rewarding. So thanks club members for being great. <laughs> um, so you've talked about what comes next for Patton Valley. Tell me about what comes next for you. Obviously you mentioned some of the goals are the same. You want to be off weekends. You want to have people working with you, all that kind of stuff. Uh, other sort of things on the horizon for you personally or professionally that you're looking forward to, uh, projects or roles or, or things outside of wine that you're excited about? Life outside of wine? I'm sorry, I, I know. <laughs> Um, let's see, what's up? My life has changed so much since COVID has hit. So um, actually, I met my husband in the beginning of COVID. So talk about not only all of this change, but we also got married and I'm a stepmom now. <laughs> like, so talk about, uh, let's just like pack it all into as much change as possible. Um, so life moving forward, I think, um, you know, we bought a house, like I said, five minutes away from here. So we're trying to build that up. Um, and he gets to work from home now, so we just got to redo our office there. So we're, I think for us, it's just trying to build, build up life and maybe have it settle a little bit. There's been a lot of change in the last, I guess four years, we're 2024 now, but we'll say three years is the beginning of the year. Um, there's been a lot of change um, and I am looking forward to things calming a little bit. Um, I want to have more time to actually maybe go out wine tasting now. I know, right? Life outside of wine. But like, go back to it. Like, actually get to enjoy it again. Um, and just be able to go do things again that are calming and mellow. And we just haven't, between COVID life and adjusting to all the other new things in life, it'd be really great to have a moment. I say that. It's never going to happen. We're renewing our house and everything with just those people. 
Um, I would like to um, do finish the W set finally. That is at least one thing professionally that I didn't finish. I went through like the whole course and then I had to miss the test date. And that, yeah, COVID times. Um, no, I think it was actually right before that. But anyway, I missed the test date and then I, the next test was too far away. I was like, I'm not gonna remember the, all of this stuff. You gotta like cram it, right? Um, which was obnoxious. <laughs> but, so I actually would like to finish that eventually. Um, I'd like to actually like sit down and start learning again, going back to the education side of things. I have been so busy just trying to stay afloat uh, that I like don't read books about wine and or even just history books. I don't like, I'd like to learn things again. That'd be really fun. Um, that's not compliance. I'd like to learn other things. <laughs> Interesting things. Um, yeah, I think, I guess that's kind of everyone's goal is to maybe calm down in life a little bit. It probably won't happen, but we could be, we could be optimistic. <laughs> just 5%, just like 5% calmer. Just a little bit. Amazing. A little more work-life balance again. We were getting there and then COVID, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think starting education again would be, it's probably a big one for me. Um, I, I really liked doing that. I liked teaching classes. I liked doing wine tours. I liked writing articles. Um, so trying, you know, at least as far as professionally, if I can go back to doing some of that stuff and actually build back up what I knew before, um, that would be fun. That would be a different side of the wine industry that I walked away from a while ago. So there, that's a goal. <laughs> I should write that down for myself. Um, on a post-it on your the computer. post-it, yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you talked a little bit earlier about sort of the future of Oregon, the industry in Oregon, um, and all the changes that have happened to it in the last few years as well. So tell me about, from your perspective, um, how you, the biggest changes you've seen in, in the industry, um, and maybe a little bit about what you think might, comes ne might, might come next. Yeah, I mean, I think, at least from the tasting room side or the DTC side of it, um, as I mentioned, I think the biggest change was this, how is the consumer experience. What is the consumer experience? Um, you know, we went from bellying up, wow, I can't say that, bellying up to bars, um, to having 90 minute reserved time slots at tables. Um, and is that good and is that not? And I think that's been the biggest change. So we had to do it. The benefit of doing it is that we learned, hey, you can schedule staff better. Um, we were seeing higher sales. How much of it was that and how much of it was people were just buying more? I'm not positive. I mean, I know there's a lot of reports and stuff that say that people have a better experience that way and they'll buy more. Um, but we're also seeing a tick down right now, so I don't know. Um, I think that you know everyone liked it. It was really nice. And so they have stuck with it. Um, and there's very few tasting rooms now that you feel like you can walk into from a consumer standpoint at least um, and I've even had this I've gone into some and this was slightly more COVID times but you know I went into one and they're like do you have a reservation and I said no and there was no one there and they were like oh we can't do a tasting I was like wait hold on I'm a little confused uh, so they poured me a glass of wine but they wouldn't let me do a flight and um, I think that we have to kind of come off of that a little bit. And, and we're starting to see it. You're seeing people with pop-up signs out now that say walk-ins welcome. Um, so I think from the industry standpoint, we were somewhat forced to do it, but then we kept it a little bit longer than maybe we needed to. And I do think we kind of turned off a group of people. 
Um, and I know we turned off a group of people because I've had consumers come in and tell me that they hate reservations. They, you know, when I think what used to be the best part about the wine industry and the collaborative part of it is you would go to a tasting room, maybe you knew or one you were recommended, and you would ask them, where do I go next? And that was always my favorite question when they would come in too, because they'd ask me and I'd say, hold on until the end of the tasting and let me find out what your profile is and then I'll send you to the next spot. And they loved that and I loved it, it was a fun game. Um, but people don't feel like they can do that anymore, I, especially with these 90 minutes, because like what if you go in and this happens all the time, right? Your tasting only takes you 45 minutes or it takes you two and a half hours. <laughs> and so you either have an hour gap, which isn't quite enough because you can't walk into anywhere, but then like, what do you do? Sit in your car, which is what a lot of people do, which kind of takes the fun out of it. Or you now have missed a tasting and the other place is upset with you and they're trying to call you and you're trying to enjoy yourself. <laughs> it's just, um, it, I don't think it's quite working. Now, do I think that reservations are great? Just like reservations for restaurants are great. And you know, if you know you're there and you know you have a spot and that's wonderful. Um, but I do think we have to start becoming more flexible again. And I think we have to start becoming more welcoming again. Cause I do think that we kind of veered off a little bit from that. Um, and that's not everyone by any means, but I do think that, you know, I don't really like when the first question I get asked when I walked into a tasting room is, do you have a reservation? Cause then I'm kind of like, oh, did I need one? I'm sorry. Um, and I don't think that's the best first experience to have. Uh, so, you know, I think we're starting to see people realize that again, and they're still going to keep that aspect of it because for staffing and stuff, it is wonderful to know, oh, we're totally booked on Saturday. Like, uh, we need to make sure we have extra people here. But, you know, I think, I think we need to start remembering our roots, so to speak. You know, that's what made Oregon was being collaborative and recommending other tasting rooms and getting to know our customers. And let's remember that. And maybe that is at a seated tasting that lasts 90 minutes, but maybe it's also just them standing at the bar and they taste for 15 minutes and they leave, but they just went and recommended you to 20 other people. Mm -hmm. You know, you just don't quite know. You never know. Um, and we need to remember that you never know. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, I think we're starting to get back there. I really hope as an industry we get back there. So fingers crossed. <laughs> um, not that it's, uh, hey, the big fancy experiences are their own thing too, but as a whole. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about uh, ITC during this interview, and I don't think that's something most people are familiar with. So tell us a little bit about, about ITC and about how you got into that role. Yeah, because um, I can't say no to things. <laughs> so ITC stands for Industry, Industry Tasting Collective. Um, I did not come up with it. It used to be a more formal thing, and I don't remember what happened. Something happened, you can ask Dave Walker. He was part of it forever ago. Um, he's been in the industry forever. But um, when I got up here and I was new, uh, Rachel Adams was at Bethel Heights at the time and she had it and she was looking to get rid of it. Because um, it's a lot of work and you don't get paid. Um, so, but I was new and I was like, this is a great networking opportunity. So I said I would do it. But pretty much what it is, is um, I schedule wineries to we go and taste either morning or evening, so before opening or after. Uh, it used to be once a week. We're kind of paring it down a little bit just because we're all busy. Um, but the winery would be open and for industry people to be able to come in. And going back to that quick tasting, it was the idea we came in, we tasted really fast, um, we got all the information we needed to know about them, so we knew what their wines tasted like, we knew what their experiences were, 
we got you know any marketing materials they wanted to give us and we took them back to our tasting rooms and we shared them with everyone else so again we would be able to recommend people more wisely than being like, yeah, they're just our neighbor, go there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's really what that it was all developed for. Um, so that's what I do. So I schedule these out for everyone, which is like herding cats. <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun to schedule all the wineries, let me tell you. Um, I don't know why I'm still doing it. I've been doing it since 2016. <laughs> um, control freak side, see? But um, we've developed it a little bit over the years. At one point, I actually did start to add in educational meetings and stuff like that again and then COVID hit. Uh, we are gonna start to do educational meetings again this year. I haven't quite wrapped my head around what exactly that will be, but it's just meant to be an industry platform. We have a Facebook page. We all can go on there and ask questions like, you know, hey, have you dealt with this? Or does anyone have extra glasses for this weekend because I'm running an event and I'm out? Um, it is, again, we're a collaborative industry, so it's really great that we have this platform that we can all go talk to each other um, and ask all these questions. So that is what it is, um, and at some point I should probably hand it off to someone new so they can start networking. <laughs> I feel like I have to get it to the perfect spot first, and you know there's no perfect spot. So here soon, here soon someone else will be able to take it on. <laughs> anyone out there wants it let me know <laughs> um, but it is a pretty cool thing for an industry to have um, and so it needs to expand a little bit right now it's just in the Willamette Valley mm -hmm. and you know I've been reached or contacted from some people down in Eugene area or you know all the way up in Portland and stuff um, but that's too far for you know the group of people tasting wise so we should have off branches mm -hmm. it'd be great um, I'm not doing that someone else should do that <laughs> It's like a good slogan for you, I think. I'm not doing that. Someone else should I do know. that. I, I need to also write that on a post on a computer. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fantastic. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything that we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? I don't think so. Okay. Got the story. Awesome. Thank you so much yeah. for your time sharing this space with us again and uh, sharing your stories with us. And go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.